0: with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we'll look this morning at verses 1 through 7, and the title of today's message is Redeemed Unto Adoption. We'll look at our glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ because we have been redeemed by His blood to the end that we are adopted as God's sons. Now, You all know that adoption is near and dear to my heart. Um, To adopt a child is a unique experience, and it's typically a very specific process. that's laid forth by the government. Um, The idea of spiritual adoption is no different. It's not laid forth by the government. It's laid forth by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Scripture. And um, God has this specific, distinct process that He's defined In Holy Scripture, whereby we understand how we are adopted. And we see the the flow of God's plan of salvation through this passage in our adoption in Christ. I want to read this text, and since it's been kind of a number of weeks since we've really dug into Galatians, I want to spend a few minutes resetting the context, and then we will work our way through this. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, this is the word of the living and the one and the only true God. It says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But... When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom and the ability and the opportunity we have to gather together week in and week out as a church body, a church family, to sit under the authority of your word. Lord, so we don't sit under the authority of the teachers or the preachers of your word, but under the authority of your truth and your truth alone. Every week, if there is to be anything gathered, taken away from our time in the word, Lord, it is a miracle that you must do, that you must accomplish through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that is our prayer this morning, that by your Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that you would humble us, that you would break us where we have sinned, that you would grant us repentance, and that you would ultimately conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, would you show us Christ? Would you conform us to Christ? Would you allow us to glory all the more in the work of Christ? Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else to turn. We come to you, Lord. We are dependent upon your grace, poured out upon us through your spirit to illuminate us and to change us according to the proclamation of your truth. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and give us hearts that are eager and ready and able to respond to the truth. Lord, you are good, you're faithful. Lord, though the world around us is crazy and chaotic, we stand upon the promise that your word endures forever. And Lord, as we stand upon that promise, may we be fed by the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that in all that we do for the rest of our service, I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, may you increase and may we decrease. May your glory increase among us, God, cause us to see Christ, cause us to love Christ, cause us to be devoted to him as we think about the glorious work that he accomplished, that he completed for our salvation. Pray all these things now in Jesus' holy and precious and victorious name. Amen. So as I said, I want to take just a few minutes to reset the book of Galatians. It's been really five or six weeks since we've been week in and week out in this letter. And so I want to just kind of reset the stage. The first four chapters are Paul's um, core doctrinal teaching in this epistle. Chapters five and six, he really gets into the nuts and bo- bolts of practical application. We began in chapter one with Paul telling the Galatians that they must not forsake The gospel. He said that anyone who comes to you and preaches a different gospel, that one is to be accursed. He is to be condemned, and so too is the one who believes that different gospel. They are accursed. They are condemned because they are not in Christ. Paul defended his life and ministry. He said that he is not playing religious games. He is not after the praise or the applause or the approval of men. In chapter 2, Paul said that his message was indeed confirmed by the leaders of the Jewish church, Peter, James, and John, and those other men who led that church when he went and presented to them the gospel that he was proclaiming as he was on the mission field. They confirmed it, they supported it, and they linked arms with him in ministry as he went out to pioneer the spread of the gospel. Paul said throughout that righteousness comes only by faith. That's really the main point of this letter, is that righteousness is apart from works of the law. It comes only through faith in Christ. In Galatians 2.21, Paul wrote, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That is the ultimate point here. If righteousness comes from the law, then why do you need Christ? If you are made righteous through what you do, then there was no purpose for Christ to give his life. But Paul makes clear, we do not find our righteousness through the law, but only through faith. In fact, in chapter 3, he made clear that even Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the one to whom these Jews would look as their head in the faith, and he said that even Abraham was justified only by faith. For Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness is not the basis or the merit of his works, but because he had faith in Christ, in Christ alone. And then really chapter 3 comes to this climactic end in verses 23 through 29, especially 27 through 29, where Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, but you are all one in Christ He said that you have been baptized into Christ, you have now clothed yourselves with Christ, and you belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are his possession, and you are called to live as he tells you to live. You put Christ on, you take the flesh off, and you live according to the truth of his word. Now this is all important background as we move into chapter 4 because in chapter 4 we really continue this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant where Paul teaches that the law has been fulfilled in Christ and so now we depend on faith alone. Your faith in a sense is made sight because Jesus has come. You hear eyewitness accounts of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the old covenant has passed away. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, given for many for the forgiveness of sins. So all that background working into chapter four helps us to see the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And so what Paul does beginning in chapter four is he sets forth this analogy, this illustration of a child who grows into adulthood to receive the inheritance that his father has given him. And he ties this together to show us that the law serves only to lead us, to bring us to Christ. So to apply that to us, to give us kind of a central proposition, a central theme or thesis that we want to study today, we see that the law was fulfilled by Christ. You are therefore redeemed and adopted through his work. And being redeemed and adopted through the work of Christ, you must live as one who is redeemed. You do that by forsaking your sin and glorifying your Father who is in heaven. You are adopted. God is your Father if you are in Christ, and you are called to glorify your Father who is in heaven by walking in good works. MacArthur summarized this passage well. He said the central truths of this passage are that life under the law is meant by God to be preparation for divine sonship. The life under the law prepares us for divine sonship. It prepares us to be adopted by God as his children. And it is trust in his grace that brings realization to that sonship, MacArthur concluded. So really, that's what we want to look at in this. We want to see how the law enslaves us. How the law served only to deliver us to Christ. We want to look at the redemption that we have, that we know in Christ. Look at the particulars of that redemption. And then finally, we'll spend a few moments at the end looking at the adoption of the Father and the glorious inheritance that awaits us in eternity. So let's begin then looking at verses 1 through 3 under the heading of the enslavement of the law, the enslavement of the law. Paul begins by saying, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Now, this is a similar idea to what we looked at a few weeks ago at the end of Galatians 3, where Paul said, Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. So Paul uses a similar illustration here, but he broadens it. You remember as we looked at the idea of a tutor, it was something that was specific to the Roman culture. And so now Paul broadens this illustration a little bit to bring in the Jewish and the Greek culture that was common. Basically, those were the three dominating cultures in the region of Galatia. So Paul begins by speaking of a child. A child who is heir to his father's property. But Paul says that child is no different than a slave while he remains in his youth. While he remains in his adolescence, he has not received his inheritance, and so he's no different than a slave. He owns nothing. He's the owner of everything because he is his father's inheritor, but he owns nothing because he's still a child and his father is still living. Now, each of the main cultures, the Jews, the Greeks, and the Romans, all had these ceremonies, these traditional ceremonies, where a child would be transferred from childhood to adulthood. The um, Greeks would do that at the age of 18. The Romans and the Jews were typically at the age of 13. And they had specific ceremonies that they would um, partake of as a child would be ceremoniously moved from childhood to adulthood. And so it's this childhood period that Paul is writing of. He says that while the child was still a, was still a youth, while he was still officially legally in his childhood, he had no inheritance. William Hendrickson explained this by saying that while the child was heir by legal right, that legal right had not yet been enacted. It had not yet been brought into place. It had not, he had not claimed his right yet because he was too young to do so. He was owner of everything, yet he possessed nothing in his youth. The illustration continues in verse 2. He says, but this child is under guardians and managers until the date that is set by his father, really till the date that is set by the culture, age of 13 or the age of 18, or if a father wanted to go rogue, he could set whatever age he wanted to. And so now this is a familiar idea. Again, when we think about that idea of a tutor, it's not the same term, but this idea of guardians and managers, the same idea. These guardians and managers were the managers of a household. They were the caretakers of the home. They were charged with making sure that the home operated and ran according to the desire of the man of the home. Included in that would be the upbringing of the children, They would be in charge of making sure the children received education, that they were fed, that they grew, that they were taught obedience, that they were taught rules and laws and whatever needed to come. That's what a guardian or manager did. That's what a tutor did. And so you say, what's the point? What do these guardians, what do these managers, what do these tutors have to do with Christians, with faith, with the law? salvation. Well, verse 3 kind of begins to lay that out for us. Paul writes there, so we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, typically when we study scripture, when we see a we like that, we want to interject ourselves. And typically, oftentimes we can do that. But Paul has a specific audience here. He is writing especially to Jewish Christians. So Paul was a converted Jew. He's writing to mostly to Jewish Christians in Galatia for the issues that they're facing and he says while we were children we were held under held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. He says while we were like a child the law was our guardian. The law was our manager, it was our caretaker. It was our tutor. So that's very similar to what we saw in chapter 3. But Paul brings in a new concept here. He says we were held in bondage. It's the Greek word doulao, where we get the word doulos, meaning slave. So Paul says that we were enslaved to the elemental things of the world while we were still children. So now let's pull out and think, what are these elemental things? I think there's a, a clear illustration that can kind of help us understand. Think about the idea of elementary school. When a child begins school, they're in elementary school and is the first schooling in a series of of academic ventures to take a child from kindergarten through high school. That is an elemental thing, is the first thing in a specific series. The law was the first step in God's plan of salvation. How do we know that? Because it came first. God is in control of all things, and He brought about the law before He sent Christ. We have an old and a new covenant because God ordained things that way. The law was the first in God's series in His plan of redemption. But then came misuses, then came abuses, then came misapplications of the law by the Jewish peoples, by the Jewish people, and that is when the law became an enslavement. That's when the law became like a a guardian or tutor that was harsh and pressed down and enslaved the people because they used and applied the law in a wrong way. The law serves only to point and to lead us to Christ. Yet the Jews decided that they would use the law to bring them salvation. So Paul says, while we were children, before Christ came, we were held in bondage, under the elemental things of the world. We were held in bondage to the man made traditions of the Jews and of their law. He put it this way to the Colossians in Colossians 2, uh, verse 8. He said, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and through empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it that you're not taken captive by philosophy, by man-made principles, by the elemental things of the world. So there's a little tie-in even to the Greek culture, to the Gentile culture, the pagan philosophies. He says, we were all, in a sense, whether Jew or Gentile, held in bondage to the elemental things, whether it was pagan religion for the Gentiles or whether it was the man-made traditions that came into the law from the Jews, we were all held in bondage before and until Christ. So getting to the heart of the matter, to properly understand the glory of adoption in Christ, we must understand the captivity of the law. In a way, the law served as a caretaker. We, we've looked at that, that, that it has its positive effects, that it confined sins, that it was de- designed by God to to keep the Jews from wandering too far off the reservation into sin. But in a a much more appropriate way, in a much more practical way, the law served as a harsh disciplinarian. It revealed sin, and it enslaved people to their sin and to the law. Sin, the, The law, I think, is much like when you give a rule to a child. If you tell your child don't go play in the road, they may have never thought about playing in the road until you tell them don't go play in the road. But now that they have a law, now that they have a rule, their flesh is curious. What's going to happen if I go play in the road? What, why, why did mom and dad say that I can't go play in the road? Or think about two children playing, they're sitting there playing nicely and getting along and there's a toy sitting over to the side, nobody's touched, they've been playing for 30 minutes. Well, now one of the kids reaches over and starts playing with that kid. And, now the arguing, now the bickering, now the fighting starts because this toy that nobody had cared about has been brought into the situation. That is what the law did. It served as a boundary fence. It's like a, like a chain link fence that keeps you inside the bounds, but you can see through it. You can see to the other side of that fence. You can see that green grass on the other side of the fence, and you think, that grass looks good. That grass looks nice to my flesh. Well, what the... What our sinful flesh doesn't realize is that grass is laced with poison. That grass will burn you alive as soon as you step in it. That is what the law did. It confines us, it shows us our sin, and then it inflames our flesh to the desires that are against the law, that are against God. So this is enslavement to the law. It binds us. It holds us captive It reveals our sin. It reveals our sin nature. And ultimately, the law in its its good purpose is designed to show us our need for a Savior. It confines our sin. It reveals our sin. And it shows us that we cannot be saved on our own. We must have a Savior. We must have one who fulfills the law. That's the second point, moving to verses 4 and 5, we see the redemption of Christ, the redemption of Christ, verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There are important, many, many important things that we see about the nature of Christ's work, the nature of the redemption that we know in Christ through this text. And then in verse 5, we see the great purpose of the redemption. Paul stacks purpose statement upon purpose statement. Verse 5, so that he might redeem us who are under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's purpose stacked upon purpose. Let's begin by looking at the nature of our redemption, the nature of our redemption in Christ. Firstly, Paul writes that it was when the fullness of time came. When the fullness of time came, Jesus came according to the sovereign plan of the Father. The Son came at the appointed time of the Father. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the first recorded words of Jesus by Mark in his gospel is that Jesus was going around saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The Son has come. The Savior is here. The time has come when the Father was ready to transfer from the old covenant of the law to the new covenant of grace through the Son. Romans 5.20 says that the law came so that transgression would increase. The time was fulfilled, transgression had increased. Knowledge of sin, desire for wickedness had come to the point where God was ready to send His Son. because after the work of the Son, then came the helper, the, the, the Holy Spirit who helps to curb and to curb sin and to sanctify believers. The time was fulfilled. The Father was determined to reveal the Messiah. And at this proper time, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. The Father sent forth the Son. So not only did the Son come at the proper time uh, to fulfill the sovereign plan of the Father, but he came according to the divine will of the Father. He came according to the divine instruction of the Father. Jesus was absolutely was, is, and ever will be deity, divine, an equal person of the Trinity. Yet Jesus, the Son of God, submitted himself to the divine will, the divine plan of the Father, and he came to this earth at the moment that the Father told him. So he submitted to the plan and to the divine will of the Father. He came to accomplish redemption at the exact time ordered by the Father. So Jesus was sent from heaven with a divine mission, but he also came from heaven and he was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. He came by the way and in the form of humanity. Jesus humbled himself to be as his creation. Jesus is the author and creator of all things, and yet in humility, in obedience, in submission to the plan of the Father, he came to be part of that which he had created. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 say that Jesus emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. This is the person and the work of our Savior. He was humble. He laid aside the privileges of his glory and his deity. He willingly came to the earth that he had created to suffer tremendously so that he might redeem a people, a people for his own possession, who were bought and paid for by his blood, who are set apart to be a people for his glory. Now, we can't talk about Philippians 2 without pausing for a moment for some application. To to think about the idea that we are called to be like Christ. And Christ showed ultimate humility when he laid aside the privileges of glory and came to this earth, his creation. We must be humble and we must lay aside our perceived rights in the interest of serving our brothers and sisters. Jesus came to serve humanity. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We must lay aside perceived rights and they are perceived because only God has any rights. We are his people. He is sovereign. So we lay aside our perceived rights for the interest of brothers and sisters and ultimately to submit to and to obey our God. That is the humility of Christ, that he laid aside rights and privileges so that he could obey the Father. Jesus is the perfect example of humble obedience. For nothing in him was taken by selfishness or empty conceit. He looked not to his own interest, but to the interest of others, to the interest of the Father. The obedience to the Father and to serve others was his greatest joy. There was no stooping that was too low for Christ. He is the ultimate example of humility. Thinking about this idea this week, it just, it it hit me that really humility is is our ultimate fight against sin. To be humble, to be like Christ in humility, is your ultimate weapon in sanctification. For when you lay aside every right, when you lay aside every privilege, when you consider yourself to be made a slave to all, mostly, most above all, a slave to God, that is when you will be sanctified that is when you will be made to be like Christ. That is when you're able to resist temptation because you realize you are not your own. You realize that to fulfill your flesh is not something that you can make the determination to do. You lay aside all those things and you determine that obedience to the Lord is the thing of greatest importance that brings you the greatest joy. So if you want to be like Christ, if you want to be conformed to His image, If you want to be sanctified, dear friends, be humble. Be like Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though existing in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. He took on the appearance of a man. He came to his creation. He learned obedience to the point of death. Be like Christ. Learn obedience to the point of death. Learn obedience to the point that it costs you everything. And then you will be like Christ. Now, Paul continues. He doesn't stop there. He says that Jesus was born of a woman. Then he also says that he was born under the law. As we just slow down and consider, it's just amazingly glorious to consider these things about Jesus, what he actually did, what he actually accomplished so that we could be saved. He was born under the law. This is a specific requirement that Jesus fulfilled through his coming to redeem a people. So now why did Jesus come in subjection to the law? Why was he born under the law? Calvin explains, I think very helpfully, that Jesus did so in our place, that he might obtain freedom for us. A man who was free, Jesus, by giving himself as a guarantee redeems a slave. By putting on himself the chains, he takes them off the other. Calvin concludes, So Christ chose to become liable to keep the law so that exemption from it might be obtained for us. Jesus submitted himself to the law so that all your breakings of the law might be washed away. He was liable to the law because in your liability to the law, all you receive is condemnation. Romans 8 verse 3, Paul writes, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What the law could not do because it was so weak, because our flesh is so wicked and so weak, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Jesus was born under the law. He fulfilled the law for us. And now maybe you're thinking, you're asking the question, now hasn't Paul said that we are not saved by keeping the law? Hasn't he said that salvation is only by grace, only through faith? Indeed, he has. We are not saved by works of the law because you and because I cannot keep the law. The requirement of keeping the law perfectly is what would have to take place for us to be saved. We cannot keep the law. Perfect law keeping is God's requirement for salvation. Hear that very clearly. Perfect law-keeping, perfect obedience is God's requirement. That's what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Perfect obedience is God's requirement. So what we could not do, keeping the law perfectly, Jesus has done for us. He was born as one under the law so that he might fulfill the law's requirements. That is the importance of Jesus coming as a man, coming as a Jew, coming as one under the law. He fulfilled God's law perfectly so that he could be a sacrifice for us. That's Paul's next statement, moving to verse 5. He was born under the law, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Who was under the law? Everyone. Everyone is under God's divine law. Every soul ever created is under God's divine law, and every soul ever created is condemned when they sin against God. To redeem means to buy out, to buy something out of something. Thayer's Greek Dictionary defines this term, as being redeemed by the payment of a price to recover something or someone from the power of another. That's what Jesus did. He redeemed us. He bought us out of our slavery to the law, our slavery to sin. He bought us from that power and delivered us over to himself. What was the price that Jesus paid? You likely know the answer. It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It wasn't the sacrifice of bulls or goats or lambs. It was the sacrifice and the blood poured out by the holy and precious and righteous Lamb of God. So he who kept the law perfectly was condemned by that very law in your place. He bore your sin in his body on the tree so that you might die to sin live to righteousness, and by his wounds you are healed, you are made whole. That's the atonement that Jesus accomplished. That is the work that he completed. He delivered us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light by giving his life as a ransom for you and me. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, for Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is the work that was accomplished. We're delivered from darkness to light because Jesus rescued us. So how do we respond when we think about that redemption? 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 says, By this the children of God... And the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Verse 5 of Galatians 4 says that we were redeemed that we might receive adoption. We are made God's children. First John chapter 3 says, by this the children of God are obvious. Those who do not practice the righteousness of God are not his children. Those who are not righteous and who do not love the brethren. First John chapter 5 says by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome that is how we know that we are a child of God is that we obey him and we want to obey him it is not a burden it is not a weight it is not a trial to walk in obedience to the Lord now will there be trials Absolutely. Will there be suffering? Absolutely. But it's not the obedience to God in that trial that makes it a trial. It's the suffering that comes because you are part of a broken and a sinful creation. First John chapter 2, verse 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So we have come to know him. We are made his sons. We're redeemed. We are adopted. We know that we are redeemed. We know that we are adopted when we keep his commandments. So we're saying that the law has enslaved us, but Christ has redeemed us. Lastly, we want to look at the adoption of the Father. We'll be brief here. This is one of those topics that you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks covering what it means to be adopted what it means to be joint heirs with Christ, so we'll just kind of skim the surface of this. Verse 6, Galatians 4, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul shows the confirmation of our sonship in the Father is that he has put the Spirit of his Son in us. He has put his Spirit in us, and that Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. That is the Aramaic term where we would get the the idea of, of endearment, where you would say, Daddy, or Papa. Vine's Dictionary says this term signifies unreasoning trust, not unreasonable trust unreasoning trust. It is unrestrained. It is unhindered. It is an innocent trust in our heavenly Father. And it's this type of unhindered trust, dear friends, that we must have if we are really going to obey God in this crooked and evil and perverse world. Frankly, the the world around us could cause us all kinds of fear and anxiety, and stress, and would lead us into temptation and to sin if we were not filled with this unreasoning trust, whereby we call the creator of all things, our daddy or our papa. He is our father. He works all things together for our good, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works all things together for our good and for his glory. And if you don't believe that, if the Christians in Afghanistan did not believe that, how would they suffer today? How would you suffer today? How would you put your life on the line for a faith whereby you did not know that you were suffering for your Father, your Heavenly Father who loves you, who is going to strengthen you in that suffering, and who ultimately will bring you to Himself. By this, we know that we are sons of God because he puts his spirit in us, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans eight fifteen and 16, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit testifies that we are children and then he enables, then he strengthens us to walk in obedience. Verse 7, Paul says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. You're not a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are an heir. Think back to John chapter 13 through 17. that, That evening before his death, where Jesus was with the disciples, he started out by telling them that you are my slaves. Then he told them, well, you're my slaves, but you're also my friends. Then in John 17, when he prayed that priestly prayer, Jesus said, Lord, make them one with one another, but even greater than that, make them one with us. That is what we have and what we know through Christ. We are made one with our Savior, we're no longer slaves, but sons. And of sons, we are heirs. This is the glorious truth of our redemption in Christ. We're redeemed not to the outer courts of God's heaven, but we are redeemed to rule and to reign with him. We are, we are redeemed to become joint heirs with our Savior. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 2 says that the Father appointed Christ as heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. All things belong to Jesus. And you and I who are in Christ are heirs with him. What a glorious, glorious inheritance. A glorious inheritance that is ours because we are adopted to be God's sons. And if we're joint heirs with him, shouldn't we be conforming our lives to his image? For what king would share his kingdom with those who hate him? What king would share his kingdom with those who are not devoted to him? What king would share his kingdom with those who would live or who would rule in ways that are against him or against his standards? Dear friends, if we are sons, if we are heirs, Let us become like Christ because one day we will rule with him and we will not subject him to our thoughts and our opinions. We will be made perfect to be like him and we will rule and reign as he sees fit to rule and reign. So let's bring our time to a conclusion and and we'll move to the Lord's table in just a moment. We must allow the law to do its job. It was given to confine behavior, yes, but even, even more so it was given to reveal sin. It was given to condemn sinners and to show us that righteousness comes only through faith. The purpose of the law was to deliver us to Christ for salvation. Dear friend, let the law do its job. Let it show you your sin and deliver you to Christ in faith for salvation must also live as those who are redeemed. We are bought out from the law. We are bought by the precious blood of Christ, and we must live in such a way that shows the precious cost of our redemption. We are not under the law, but we are clothed with Christ. We are clothed with Christ to walk not according to the desires of the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit. If you are clothed in Christ, your life will display the fruit of the Spirit. God willing, we will get to that in Galatians 5 in a a number of weeks. But if you are redeemed, if you are clothed in Christ, you will display the fruit of the Spirit. So we must allow the law to do its job. We must live as those who who are redeemed, and we must live as sons of God. We must live as those who are adopted by God. And as sons of God, we ought to obey him exactly as Jesus obeyed. We must obey sacrificially. We must obey humbly. And we must obey with both a pure heart, but also wholeheartedly. Dear friends, that is our call today. You are redeemed unto adoption. And if you are adopted, if you are God's son, You must live as those who are his sons. You must be conformed to the image of Christ. And you do that by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer.